Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Football preseason has arrived, and baseball is coming down to the wire. BetOnline has you covered for the rest of the summer and beyond with the best odds, promos, payouts, and parlays. Use our promo code BLEAV50, that's B-L-E-A-V-5-0, to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good afternoon or good night. However, and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping in to another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy Podcast Live. On the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is Wednesday, August 10th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever it is that you may be listening We have got a fantabulous show coming at you today. We are going to do a deep dive into this new Big Ten football contract. We're going to call it an oral history because it follows the same format of the oral histories that we've done in the past. If you want to check out uh, the full lineup of our oral histories podcasts, we did one with the uh we did one with Florida State football we did one with the Detroit Lions we did one with the Buffalo Bills new stadium we did one with the Los Angeles formerly San Diego Chargers we've done like 10 oral history segments uh that you're available wherever you want Gonzaga basketball Texas Tech football there's a bunch of different ones in there but this Big 10 TV deal is going to follow that format and we're going to talk about it coming up a little bit later here on the show Where I want to first start off here today is by talking about, uh, well, I guess bringing back the Kevin Durant saga. And to do that, we have our poorly edited intro music for the Last Dance theme song. Kyrie Irving is so disgruntled with the Brooklyn Nets. That he has told some within the organization that he does not want to return to the team. And so we have a standoff here that nobody knows exactly where it's going. He is not making this about money. He wants out of there and he's telling you there is no amount of money. We want him back in the worst way. I know he knows that. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll continue to work at it. The situation between the Brooklyn Nets and Kevin Durant is not good as far as this weekend as far as training camp we will see there's been one message consistently coming out of Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant and and that's I don't want to be here the last time we talked about the Kevin Durant saga it was two weeks ago and this is technically the third time we followed up it seems to be every about two weeks 
that we tend to talk about the Kevin Durant situation with the Brooklyn Nets because there's a new development every about two weeks as the relationship uh, deteriorates further between the uh, Brooklyn Nets and Kevin Durant. It was actually July 26th was the last time that we talked about Kevin Durant. That is, uh, according to my count, exactly two weeks ago from the time of recording. I'm recording this on Tuesday night. So two weeks ago was the last time we talked about Kevin Durant because the new development was it got leaked out that the Boston Celtics were interested in trading for Kevin Durant and that Jalen Brown not necessarily was so aggravated that he wanted to leave the Brooklyn Net or wanted to leave the Boston Celtics now, but Jalen Brown kind of had like a strike one moment with the Boston Celtics where it's like you only get so many of those strikes in messing with the relationship before the player says, hey, I'm being disrespected. What Boston did was disrespectful. It just wasn't disrespectful enough to warrant him going from, I'm still, it was disrespectful, but I'm okay still being here to crossing the threshold of that's disrespectful and I don't want to be here. Right now we're in the, it's disrespectful and it's not so disrespectful that I want to leave, but it's just a notch that moves him closer to um, the disrespect being so great that he doesn't want to be a part of the Boston organization. So we had that two weeks ago, and what we talked about at that time was this is where the uh, the Venn diagram of Kevin Durant's teams he wants to play for and teams the Brooklyn Nets want to trade him to because they offer the best trade packages. And the difference between teams Durant wants to play for and teams that have sufficient assets was basically just the Miami Heat. And because the Miami Heat wouldn't give up Bam Adebayo, there wasn't a trade available for Kevin Durant within the first two weeks that everyone could be happy and everyone goes their separate ways. Remember originally when the trade was reported on June 30th, Durant wanted to play for Phoenix or Miami. And the teams with the best trade packages, if I'm just thinking off the top of my head, were Miami and Phoenix if they could work a three-team trade for DeAndre Ayton and Toronto and Boston and Memphis and Denver those are about the best trade packages I could think of New Orleans might be in the mix and if OKC wants to throw nine first round picks they're in the group but obviously they they're probably not at a stage where they're trying to trade for a Kevin Durant so those are the teams those eight teams are the ones with the best trade packages maybe if Paul George were included with the Clippers but point still stands those eight teams had the best trade packages Teams Durant wants to play for were just Phoenix and the uh, Phoenix and Miami, which the only ones that overlapped were Miami. Now DeAndre Ayton's gonna have to be on Phoenix's roster until to uh, until I think it's like December fifteenth. Newly signed players have to stay on the team until December fifteenth. So DeAndre Ayton's off the table. Phoenix can't get a trade package. Phoenix has kind of moved on from trading for Kevin Durant because it's just not going to happen. They didn't really have a great package in the first place, but if you take DeAndre Ayton off the table, it's got nothing, no legs to stand on. And so because Miami wasn't willing to part with Bam Adebayo, you have, after four weeks, or I guess originally I said July 14th, so two weeks after the trade package, or the trade request was first made on June 30th when he met with Joe Sy, Durant did, and said, I want to be traded, I said it would take two weeks for the trade to process. Two weeks came and went. 
there was no trade. And then on July 26th, two weeks after that July 14th deadline that I said the trade would have to, the trade would happen no earlier than July 14th. Now on July 26th, you have the report that the Boston Celtics and Kevin Durant, or the Celtics were engaged on Durant and the Jalen Brown thing and all that stuff, that basically, as I saw it, is you have to expand the Venn diagram a little bit more. And I'm just kind of spark notesing the, the podcast that we did on uh, July 26th. If you want the full breakdown of it, I'd recommend just checking out that whole podcast. But basically, a spark notes version is eight teams who have enough asset, who have enough for Brooklyn to be willing to trade Kevin Durant and two teams that Durant wants to play for. The only one that has overlap is Miami. Miami doesn't want to trade Bam Adebayo, so there's no trade package, and they're left in installing in Quagmire. And then the Brooklyn, uh, the Boston Celtics get involved, and Toronto gets involved, and they still want Kevin Durant, but Kevin Durant isn't sure if he wants to go there. And the way the trade is going to work is Kevin Durant needs to expand his trade pack, his trade destinations beyond the two teams, and it'll be easier to facilitate a trade. Because they tried to do the easy one in the first place. It didn't work. Now they're looking at who has possible, you know, talking to the other seven teams who have trade packages. They're calling New Orleans. They're calling the um, Memphis Grizzlies. They're calling the Denver Nuggets. They're taking calls from Toronto. They're taking calls from, from the Celtics. And those are the teams that could even conceive of trading for Kevin Durant in the first place. And so what you're left with is this place of being stuck in limbo between what Durant wants and what Brooklyn wants because there is no way to make it work out. And Kevin Durant has leverage and Brooklyn has at least a little bit of leverage, but not a lot of leverage in this situation, which brings us to the new development that has come down. I think it was on Monday that this came out with the Shams Sharania report that Joe Sy met with Kevin Durant in London, exactly the same way Tom Brady met with the ownership of the Bucks in London and got Bruce Arians fired. Kevin Durant met with Joe Sy in London after Kevin Durant and James Harden were chilling at a Travis Scott concert. And for some reason, I think Anthony Davis was there, but I don't know why. But I, I don't know. I'm not deep into the internet weeds of following basketball players. And Kevin Durant met with Joe Sy, basically said, yeah, I still want to get traded. Let's speed this shit up. And Kevin Durant leaked to Shams, or Kevin Durant's camp. I don't know if it was a direct line to KD, but KD's camp leaked that, hey, fire Sean Marks and fire Steve Nash. It's them or me. I get even more power within the organization. I get the power to pick the coach, pick the general manager, and I get to be GM and I get to be coach because anyone I hire is going to be a shadow coach and a shadow GM for anything and everything that I want to do. And this is uh, the classic Star Wars line. It's a trap. This was a classic it's a trap moment and fortunately Brooklyn they, they may not be a well-run organization but fortunately for Brooklyn they didn't trip up on this one. Josiah had that tweet that he's Josiah is the owner of the Brooklyn Nets for people who aren't 100% sure. He's the guy who um, basically made Amazon in China and he's worth like 40 billion dollars or something like that and he owns a European soccer team and he owns the, the Brooklyn Nets. Let's see what his net worth is exactly. Okay, it's $8.4 billion. He's worth. He's one of the richest owners, $8.4 billion. Uh, basically, he, he, he and like 40 people created Alibaba, which is, a, uh, I think, 
from what I've heard, it's basically uh, like a the the Alibaba group is a tech company that does e-commerce similar to like Amazon. So like Amazon for Asia, which is a market that has 5 billion people, which is something that people are always surprised by that like 60% of the world's population lives on the continent of Asia and surrounding areas that blend a little bit into Africa. But the point still stands. Middle East is not a real region, but Middle East and Asia geographically have like 5 billion people and he has the largest e-commerce platform and is worth $8 billion. And he owns the Brooklyn Nets and he owns the New York Liberty and uh, he has a a few soccer teams, but basically uh, he is worth $8.9 billion and owns the the Brooklyn Nets. And Joe Tsai had the tweet that came out after the report from Shams that's like, we are committed to our management. We are committed to Sean Marks and we are committed to Steve Nash, which is the thing that you have to say when you're in a, a leadership position, but they could have messed it up. And I think if you had done this with a certain number of owners, they probably would have messed it up. If they're the franchises that are like more poorly run than the Brooklyn Nets, say the Miami Dolphins, the Detroit Lions, the Sacramento Kings, like the ones that we think of as the most putrid of sports franchises, those franchises might have caved in that situation. But Brooklyn at least had the foresight to say, of course, we're not going to fire our management and keep Kevin Durant. And I saw a bunch of people out there who were like, well, if it comes down to management or Kevin Durant, of course you choose Kevin Durant. And it misses the point of this whole story that came out on Monday, which is, that Brooklyn Nets can fire uh, Sean Marks and they can fire Steve Nash and Kevin Durant is still going to leave. Like Kevin Durant is option one, two, and three for Kevin Durant is leave the Brooklyn Nets. And he's willing to make it ugly to make it happen because it wasn't an amicable breakup. He's willing to make it ugly in order to facilitate a trade. Option one, two, three, and four for Kevin Durant is get out of Brooklyn. If Brooklyn fires Sean Marks and fires Steve Nash sometime in the next three weeks, that's an incredibly stupid thing for them to do. Just like it was incredibly stupid for Tampa Bay to fire Bruce Arians as a stipulation of Tom Brady coming back to the team. Why was that incredibly stupid? Unless you had no faith in Bruce Arians as the coach, at which point I understand you you make the move there. If it was, we have faith in Bruce Arians, but we have more faith in Tom Brady, that's an incredibly stupid thing to do because now Tom Brady is the coach. And if Tom Brady is the coach with one year left on his contract, Tom Brady can just leave at the end of the season and then you don't have the coach that you have put your faith in. Now, If they have more faith in Todd Bowles than Bruce Arians, that's a different game. But what sped up the process of the firing was Tom Brady said fire Bruce Arians. Bruce Arians got fired. And then Tom Brady unretired. And it's pretty clear based on the timeline of how that all went down. It was like Tom Brady met with the ownership group on a Sunday. He was unretired by Thursday. And a week later, Bruce Arians was gone as head coach. And... All of a sudden now Tom Brady is the head coach. I know Todd Bowles is the head coach, but Tom Brady has all of the power. If he has the power to get rid of the head coach, he's got the power only secondary to the general manager of the team. And Kevin Durant would have that same level of power if the Brooklyn Nets fired their GM and fired their coach. 
But Kevin Durant's still going to leave anyways, just like Tom Brady is still going to leave at the end of the season from Tampa. It was a desperation ploy for Tom Brady because he tried to go to the Miami Dolphins. We know this now, and because he and we talked about it last week, because he and Sean Payton got screwed, the Tom Brady came back to Tampa. And the reason I keep bringing up Tom Brady is that there are only so few cases of athletes in the major North American professional sports, and really the world, but I'm just not an expert in world sports like soccer or Australian rules football and things of those sorts. In North American pro sports, there are only a handful of examples that we can point to of team sports, players in team sports having the level of power that we're talking about here. Like in the 1980s, Magic Johnson got uh, the, the coach fired and that was, and it was a 25-year contract or something like that that he signed because uh, of what the uh, what is it, Doctor Bus was trying to build for the Los Angeles Lakers and all that stuff. Like Magic Johnson had that unique level of power because his connection to ownership, and LeBron James had that unique level of power in Cleveland until Cleveland finally put their foot down and said, "Hey, we just traded Kyrie Irving, and we gave up Andrew Wiggins to get Kevin Love." Like. We're, we're not going to give up this, uh, I think it was like the number eight pick in the draft that they got from Boston, which was actually from Brooklyn. I think that pick became Colin Sexton, but they were like, unless you sign a long-term extension, we're not spending that pick. And then uh, six months later, LeBron James was gone. So there's only so many examples that you can point to of like poorly run organizations with generational stars. And the reason I say poorly run organizations is well-run organizations don't let that shit fly. Uh, you remember what happened with the, the Miami Heat. LeBron James wanted the power in Miami, and Miami's like, go pound sand, LeBron. And then LeBron left, and Miami would rather commit to the culture than give LeBron James the power over personnel decisions, which is a good idea in a vacuum only because LeBron James and Kevin Durant and Tom Brady are not qualified to make personnel decisions, and at the same time, Sometimes sports teams also hire people who are not qualified to make personnel decisions. Most of them don't work out in pretty much most of these cases. Yes, Tom Brady and Kevin Durant are not qualified to make personnel decisions and run NBA teams. That doesn't mean owners don't hire unqualified people all the time to run teams. It's usually poor, poorly run teams that hire unqualified people to run their organizations which is why Tom Brady has the power in Tampa Bay because Tampa Bay is not a well-run organization and why Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving had all the power in Brooklyn because part of their stipulation of even coming to Brooklyn in the first place was we get the power to make personnel decisions. We get the power to fire Kenny Atkinson, which was more Kyrie Irving than Kevin Durant. Kyrie Irving has the power to dictate his own schedule, things of those sorts. And so if you're the Brooklyn Nets, of course you don't give in to firing Sean Marks and Steve Nash. That was never a possibility for like a base level well-run organization because just because Kevin Durant says, oh, on my word, I'll come back if you fire Sean Marks and Steve Nash. Bullshit. Kevin Durant can still leave. Just because you fire the coach and fire the GM doesn't mean Kevin Durant can still leave. It just means he's burning bridges on the way out the door. And so bringing it back to the, the story of this week, I got it wrong the first time around. I thought this was going to be an amicable breakup, that it was Phoenix or Miami, and that those two teams were going to trade whatever it took to get Kevin Durant. Brooklyn would see the writing on the wall, and they would trade Kevin Durant. 
And I think if Miami had been willing to include Bam Adebayo, and I know there's that weird clause where Ben Simmons and Bam Adebayo can't be on the team at the same time, can't be on the same team at the same time because of two max level contracts for rookies and all that stuff. I know that there's that rule in there, but from a basic level, if Miami had been willing to trade Bam Adebayo and a third team had been willing to facilitate the trade, which if you if you dangle, dangle Ben Simmons out there, I think that another team would certainly be interested in acquiring Ben Simmons. I thought it was going to work out in two weeks, and in sometime in July, the, the second or third week, there would be a Kevin Durant trade. And I got that wrong. Obviously, I was just predicting based on probabilities. There was all there was always a probability that they were going to make it ugly. And there's a, still a probability that Kevin Durant comes back to camp. It's just the level of shame that Kevin Durant is willing to endure in order to get what he wants with the leverage that he has. The only governor against him at this point is shame. And shame effectively works sometimes. Like shame prevented Damian Lillard from getting out of Portland that one time that there was, uh, I think it was after the 2020, no, I guess 2019 season, whatever year it was where Damian Lillard was like whispering about love for Portland, but we need to do X, Y, and Z. Shame kind of governed him out of it. And uh, there, I mean, you could point to Le'Veon Bell and the holdout and him willing to endure that level of shame for something that didn't work out. But there are cases of people like, demanding trades and then backing down or saying they're going to do one thing and shame pushing them to back down. I mean, it's not an uncommon thing and not just in the sports world. I think in any world, like politicians for many, many years were governed by shame. Business leaders for years and years were governed by shame. (laughs) Call it the Choco Taco example um, in this case as a recent example is that people are governed by shame and public outcry and uh, the the threat of possibly the dollar value changing. But, uh, you know, shame and dollar values can be correlated, but not exactly the same thing. Point being, I got it wrong the first time in thinking that there would be an amicable trade worked out. And Durant, we know, is willing to make it ugly, and therefore he will get to leave Brooklyn and go exactly where he wants to go. And the reason Kevin Durant has that leverage is what I like to call fuck around and find out. And, uh, you know, insert the curse word there. But basically what fuck around and find out is, is that if a team like Toronto trades for Kevin Durant and Kevin Durant says, I'm not, I don't want to play for Toronto. I'm just not going to report and you're going to have to trade me again. Toronto could go through with the trade like they did with Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard said, I, well, I guess Uncle Dennis said, because I just did the reporting on the fall of the Spurs dynasty podcast available wherever you get podcasts. Um, Ka- Kawhi Leonard told Toronto, hey, we don't want to re-sign. We want to leave after one season. And Toronto was okay with that. They accepted that as a term of the trade. They won the championship. But even if they didn't win the championship, they expected that as a term of the trade when they traded for Kawhi Leonard. And we know in hindsight, San Antonio got 75 cents on the dollar because that was a stipulation of the trade. And so in this case, say Toronto wants to trade for Durant and Durant says, I don't want to play for you. Toronto could say, we'll take the the bet on that. And then that becomes what I just explained as fuck around and find out. Toronto's like, he wouldn't really hold out, right? That's where fuck around and find out comes into play. And for a trade like Kevin Durant, where you're giving up five years of previous draft pick, well, an all NBA player, 
and five years worth of draft picks, whether they're new draft picks or old draft picks, basically uh, an all pro player and five years worth of draft picks. You really want to play fuck around and find out on that one. So that's why Kevin Durant's going to get to go to the place he wants to go. And Phoenix is already gone now. Phoenix is out on trying to get Kevin Durant. Miami is not in a place where they're ready to trade for Kevin Durant. So like we said two weeks ago, the next step is Kevin Durant has to like slightly expand his trade candidates or just stay in this like limbo for a period of time. And whenever that happens or whenever a team has a trade in place, it'll change the math around it. And maybe we'll get more reporting of why it's taken a little bit longer but Kevin Durant leaking out the Joe Sy, you know, meeting with him and it's either Sean, it's either me or Sean Marks and Steve Nash. That's a play for like, let's speed this thing along here. And I don't know exactly what the reasons were for Kevin Durant leaking it out. We know Kevin Durant's camp leaked it out. It's just, I don't know exactly what the reasons were other than, can we get more power within the organization? Can we really like play this organization to where we get even more power than we had before? Like, we, we were in a place where, you know, four months ago, or when did they get eliminated from the playoffs? Like, three months ago, we we had t- all the power over the organization. We had a disappointing season and all that stuff. Could we walk away with more power within the organization after all is said and done? And, you know, man, that would be something crazy if that ended up being the case. But it's not the case because, again, options one, two, three, and four for Durant are leave Brooklyn go to another team and see what happens in two years of playing with that team. And uh, I think we're just kind of still stuck in this like little limbo period. And I think that's kind of funny. I think it's kind of funny to watch this all play out. And Kevin Durant and Brooklyn are in a standoff, but clearly Kevin Durant is willing to make things ugly. And because Kevin Durant is willing to make things ugly, he will get all of the leverage get to play for exactly the team he wants to play for. Maybe not the first choice, but one of the top four choices of a team he wants to play for. He has to, he may not have a no trade clause, but he has to approve any team that he has a, let's call it the fuck around and find out clause in his contract because he is such a star. Kevin Durant will get to go to a team he approves of and will, Kevin Durant will get to play for a team he approves of and we'll get to make the fully max contract that he got from Brooklyn. Might not happen on exactly his time frame, but he's doing everything he can to speed that time frame up because Kevin Durant is that level of superstar and we are stuck in a limbo where he has no shame. He's going to do as long as you're, the, the, the formula is out, as long as you're willing to make things ugly, as long as you're willing to take a public relations hit because fans lean incredibly pro-management in a lot of these cases, as long as you're willing to play it out, you have the, enough leverage to force yourself exactly to where, you get to force yourself not to exactly the place, but you get to force your way to a team that you want to play for. And that's where Kevin Durant will end up just not sure anymore how long it's going to take because we've passed the stage of an amicable breakup. Now we are at the stage of the probability is high that it will happen at some point. I just don't know what the time frame is on it. For Anthony Davis, it took six months. For James Harden, it took three months and into the regular season. For Jimmy Butler, it took two months and two months deep into the regular season. There's so many different timelines and so many different precedents. For Kawhi Leonard, it took a month to negotiate a trade and, you know, 12 months of fallout with the San Antonio Spurs. These things have different timelines. And so 
It'll happen eventually. I just have no idea how long it's going to take now. But like I said a second ago, Kevin Durant has the fuck around and find out clause, which is he is not going to be governed by shame. He has most of the leverage, not all the leverage. He has most of the leverage and he will get to play for a team that he approves of for the 2023 season. Kyrie Irving is so disgruntled with Green- the Brooklyn Nets that he has told some within the organization that he does not want to return to the team. And so we have a standoff here that nobody knows exactly where it's going. He is not making this about money. He wants out of there and he's telling you there is no amount of money. We want him back in the worst way. I know he knows that. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll continue to work at it. The situation between the the Brooklyn Nets and Kevin Durant is not good as far as this weekend as far as training camp we will see there's been one message consistently coming out of Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant and and that's I don't want to be here all right so I would like to dive into a couple of college football stories here on the show today The second one, I mentioned it off the top, we're going to talk about the ever-changing landscape of college football and the Big Ten television contract that will pay out over a billion dollars a year to essentially mimic uh, what Fox, CBS, and NBC do on Sundays with the NFL, just translate it to Saturdays with college football. There is one story that I want to talk about first and foremost, and It's a complex issue, so I'm not going to do a a 20-minute nuanced dive on this. I'm going to try and condense it as much as possible, not reiterate things that we've talked about in the past, and so on and so forth. So, at the University of Oklahoma, they had an assistant coach named Cale Gundy who got fired, or he resigned, after saying the N-word a bunch of times over and over while reading off of a player's iPad. Which, if you're keeping track at home, is the second time that a controversy of using the N-word has been used with a Gundy. Um, This is the brother of Mike Gundy, the head coach at Oklahoma State. And this whole family is like the first family of football in Oklahoma. Because Mike Gundy was originally the quarterback of Oklahoma State when Barry Sanders and Thurman Thomas were there. And now Mike Gundy's been the head coach at Oklahoma State for 15 years. And Mike Gundy has actually had a really good run with Oklahoma State, and Cale Gundy has been at the University of Oklahoma since the 1990s with a bunch of Stoopses and Lincoln Riley most recently, and now Cale Gundy has resigned because he said the N-word over and over. The reason I say this is the uh, multiple times of the Gundys being involved in controversies around the N-word is because years ago it was brought up that Mike Gundy yelled the N-word at Colorado players when he was in college at Oklahoma State on the sidelines. And Mike Gundy kind of just evolved around that situation. If you may or may not remember, Mike Gundy, the brother of Cale Gundy, is the OAN guy and the guy who got in trouble when Chuba Hubbard called him out, which led to the two of them doing a statement of unity during the summer of George Floyd with an awkward handshake at the end that looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers in 
the predator doing the handshake thing. And yeah, it was a, it was a weird situation, but remember Mike Gundy's the OAN college football head coach with allegations of racism within his college football program. So now over to Kale Gundy who read the N word a bunch of times over and over on an iPad. Kale Gundy resigned after the case. And when these types of situations come up, which I like to call lazy racism, which is, It's a story that's going to be used to push people who believe one side or the other of a polarizing issue into their corners. And the problem with this is, one, it doesn't address the real issues of structural racism and the actual impact that it has on black, brown, Asian, and uh, any form of racial minority in the United States, uh, also other countries, but specifically within the context of the United States. It doesn't address those real issues that racism actually starts to affect. And also, it's usually pushing people into their corners because it's the laziest argument to make, which is you should not say this word that is racially charged. It's the laziest argument to make because it's the most clear-cut example of we can point to this person and say racist, and we can excommunicate the racist the same way people argue we can excommunicate the bad police when... In fact, the structural racism of the police system is a much larger issue than the individual actors who behave and get essentially caught doing the bad behavior. And so, Kale Gundy resigns, and it pushes people to either sides of the corner. And the easiest argument to make when a situation like this happens is... it can't. If it, there's a lot of nuance to this issue, and there's a lot of gray area, and... The easiest part to point to is it is the fault of the white person in a position of power. Ultimately, this is a situation where he is the perpetrator, Kale Gundy, the white person in a position of power, and the black athlete, the overwhelmingly black athletes in this case, so, you know, University of Oklahoma, I'm assuming follows a similar trend of college football teams in which 75% of the teams are black players. The overwhelmingly black football team and black players and the white person in a position of power, which already proposes all sorts of power imbalances and power dynamics around this situation. And so if you want to believe that Kale Gundy is not the perpetrator in this situation, that this is a an honest misunderstanding and he should not lose his job over this situation happening. First of all, probably a white person. Second of all, there's nuance and and perspective to this. The most important perspective is the perspective of the victims in this case, is that Kale Gundy is a person who is a white person from privilege in a position of power over black players. And so there is already a power imbalance there. And when you degrade players and use a word that reduces them to being this thing that has a whole lot of centuries of racially charged language, it provides all sorts of power dynamics and makes the players feel emotions that are incredibly valid and incredibly, I mean, feeling hurt, sadness, anger, um, wanting to seek revenge against this person. This is totally valid emotions and things that are not survivable if the relationship is going to continue further between Kale Gundy and the players. Because if the status quo is maintained and there is no accountability for the white person in a position of power, now you have a situation in which that white person has 
total autonomy over the black player and it degrades the value of the black player because this person has a clear incident of valuing these people at, as lesser people. By using that word, you are valuing this person as less than a human and that power imbalance is not going to persist. And so in that situation, it's either the players are going to leave and the, fortunately, the players can leave now because for many, many years, the pow- I mean, the power imbalances of white coaches, 85% white coaches with 80% black players, has existed in college football for 50, 60 years, ever since integration began in the sport because coaching has never been integrated in college football. Leadership has never been integrated in college football. And so since integration, you have these power imbalances that have existed in college football. And so fortunately now, I mean, years and years ago, coaches could get away with degrading players. And if you remember the the Chris Doyle incident a few years ago, when two decades of the strength coach at Iowa saying that we'll send you back to where you came from and you're going to send you back to your mom and send you back to the hood, like comments like that and degrading players as a strength coach on a racial level were things that just had to be put up with because there was no accountability for the white administrators. And fortunately now there is more of a level of power to the white administrators because the black players have more power and autonomy than they've had in the past, which is a really good thing because it creates accountability for powerful people. And in this case, Kale Gundy resigned instead of being fired and perhaps Kale Gundy recognized the writing on the wall in that situation. I don't know what was happening behind the scenes. It just gives those players a level of autonomy because the alternative is if you are a person who believes that this is blown out of proportions and Kale Gundy could keep his job, you are essentially siding with this is the player's fault more than it is the white person in a position of power. And there will be, and this, this is actually a unique case. And one of the parts that I wanted to bring up is You've seen, because Kale Gundy's been at Oklahoma for 23, 24 years, uh, D.D. Westbrook giving statements of support. DeMarco Murray, who's a former running back at Oklahoma, giving statements of support for Kale Gundy. There's been a, a bunch of players that have given out Twitter statements of support for this person and his character, uh, which suggests that for years and years he is a beloved figure within the program. Both of these things are allowed to exist, is that Kale Gundy can be someone who uses the N-word repeatedly in a conversation that therefore means he should not be in a position of power, and because he's been in a position of power for two decades, has made a positive impact on these players because he's been a leader of these players for a quarter of a century and is probably really good at his job if he's continued to make it beyond the Stoopses and the Rileys and now the Brent Venables. Uh, He continues to work at Oklahoma and might, I mean, at the time he was a wide receivers coach. He's been there for a long time. And so this is part of the conversation that continually plays out. It's not one thing or the other. There's a whole lot of gray area around the situation. And as Kill Gundy leaves, he gets all these statements of support And if you are a person who is inclined to believe that this person, it's being blown out of proportions and Kale Gundy should keep his job, then the fault is on the players. The fault is on the black players. The people who want accountability for the person in power, they're the ones who are being overdramatic. They're the ones who are going against the status quo when the status quo has continued to 
push back against them for years and years and leave them in a place where they they feel like they have no autonomy and no power to speak up against someone who is degrading them. And that is a really unfortunate situation. And I'm glad that the people who experienced Kale Gundy saying, I mean, I assume it is the wide receivers and running backs room and, and people who Kale Gundy coaches on a regular basis. I'm glad that those people felt the power to bring that forward and that Kale Gundy had a form of accountability in the fact that you don't get to be in this job as a leader of black players because that job specifically is a white coach leading an 85% black room and an 85% black team. I don't know exactly what the numbers are at Oklahoma, but in the NFL, it's somewhere between 75 and 85% black players. And so that job specifically requires you to look at those people as equals and view the, and not say the N word over and over again when reading it off of an iPad. And so fortunately there was a level of accountability in this situation. And the reason that I call it lazy racism is that people either want to excommunicate the person who is a white, they, they want to excommunicate the bad person and say that that's helping to fix racism, or they want to blame the players for getting this guy fired, which you've seen a lot of, of people coming to the defense of Kale Gundy and saying, who are these players to, to get this beloved white figure, this beloved first family of Oklahoma figure fired? And or when in reality he resigned, it wasn't a firing. And uh, I think the best way to explain it came from the Oklahoma statement from Brett Venables. And I know like prepared statements aren't always the best way to uh, analyze these types of issues. I do think that the statement that Brett Venables made was pretty good and pretty good at outlining the, the nuance and perspective around this issue, which is the most important group in these situations are the people who are the victims. And in this case, that's the players who are being, you know, we're hearing a white man who is supposed to be a leader use the N word over and over to talk about them. And so here's the statement Brett Venables had uh, about Kill Gundy resigning. And I, again, I think it's a pretty good one. It doesn't articulate all of the important points. It is a prepared statement, and that's not going to touch on all of the nuance and perspective, although I think it does a pretty good job. Quote, as painful as it has been dealing with Coach Gundy resigning from the program, it doesn't touch the experience of pain felt by a room full of young men, and ad-libbing here, a room full of young black men I am charged to protect, lead, and love. There are a few things I would like to address. Coach Gundy resigned from the program because he knows what he did was wrong. He chose to read aloud to his players, not once, but multiple times, a racially charged word that is objectionable to everyone and does not reflect the attitude and values of the university or our football program. This is not acceptable. Period. Period. Coach Gundy did the right thing in resigning. He knows our goals for excellence and the coaches have special responsibilities to set an example. He also knows that while he will always be a part of the OU family, his words affected many of us and did not represent the principles of our university. Again, his resignation was the right thing to do and we will move forward positively. End quote. The resignation being the right thing to do and saying it's not acceptable and emphasizing at the very beginning before he, he addresses a few things is it doesn't touch the experience of pain felt by a room full of young black men I am charged to protect, lead, and love. 
that is the most important part of the situation is how it feels for the victims in the situation. And if this is a scenario where they cannot move past it, Kill Gundy absolutely needs to no longer be a coach. And that's a totally valid response from the players and from the, the program to a to him saying the n-word over and over again in a well multiple times i don't know how many times it was but reading the n-word off of an ipad multiple times over and over again and that's going to be a justifiable response because the relationship couldn't move forward anymore so it's a nuanced situation there's a lot of gray area around it and uh it's been about a year since i've dove into this it's especially prevalent in college football because the black labor force in college football and college basketball extended as well. College basketball has a lot of white coaches and the the power dynamics between college football coaches who are in a position of power and the level of power that the players have is incredibly imbalanced relative to professionals. Like we saw this last year as a perfect example. Urban Meyer practices the same tactics of college football in the NFL, and it's one of the greatest catastrophes in the history of NFL coaching. And Urban Meyer goes from being one of the greatest coaches ever to one of the greatest college football coaches ever to one of the worst NFL head coaches ever. And the simple reason behind it is you're allowed to be an absolute brute and a dictator to your players in college football because they don't have the rights and the power to push back against that uh, dictatorial power in college football. And again, being able to leave the program while an end result is a much better option for players to have is being able to leave a toxic situation instead of being forced to quit the sport altogether or have your career derailed because of the singular power of a dictator. It's so much better than it used to be. And it's not good enough, and it's why it's important to talk about this when Kirk Ferentz is still allowed to keep his job at Iowa, or Mike Gundy has the weird statement with Chuba Hubbard because he's the crazy OAN guy who thinks that the COVID uh, pandemic was a little bit of a farce and has uh, had allegations of using the N-word while playing in college football uh, multiple times at the uh, University of Colorado team. So you have those situations that it's really important to bring up those cases because the power dynamics, I mean, we talked about PJ Fleck also a few weeks ago. Uh, PJ Fleck at Minnesota has that same level of power imbalance because he himself comes from that Urban Meyer line of coaching and there's a power imbalance. And so PJ Fleck has dictatorial power over the program at the University of Minnesota, only heightened by the fact that college coaches get more and more power as they become in most states, the highest paid employees in those states. And because the, the people that they're looking over don't have power, there is much more of a possibility for mistreating players and running programs that players uh, feel like they have made a mistake joining. And there's a massive power imbalance and what that does for young black men as they go into their forward into their lives. Like it's just messed up how the power dynamics of college football have been developed, just like it exists in all sorts of fields. So it's important to talk about those points when they come up. It's important to hold people in power accountable because there's not enough accountability for the power imbalances of college athletics. So there is no perfect way to transition into talking about the power imbalances of college athletics and a new television contract, uh, but we're going to try and do it right now. So awkward transition, awkward transition, awkward transition, awkward transition. Just, just going to put it out there. There's no great way to talk about this to then going into the college football television contract.
Okay, we have passed through the awkward transition. We're good to go. Let's talk about college football television contracts because the Big Ten got a big old television contract on Monday. It's going to be finished sometime in the next couple of days, but all of the details are now publicly available, according to Sports Business Journal and God, what's the oh, um, gosh, the the really good football reporter Brett McMurphy. That's what I'm thinking of. Brett McMurphy reported on this as well. The Big Ten negotiated a billion dollar per year television contract with the Fox, CBS, and NBC trio that is now going to be the exclusive rights holders for the Big Ten football conference. And what I wanted to kind of break down is just the dynamics of the deal itself and do it kind of in the oral history saga of how the last few months have played out. So we've known for years that Big Ten and SEC are the two power conferences of college football. Clemson has carried the ACC for years. Again, either Florida State or Clemson won every ACC championship from 2011 to 2021. 2021 being Wake Forest. So between for an entire decade, it was just Florida State and then Clemson keeping the ACC alive because they made it to the playoff or made it to the championship every single year. But SEC teams have been the top, the cream of the crop. I think three or four different SEC teams have won national championships now within the last 10 years. And remember, Alabama has either won, has won the national championship half of the last 14 years. They've won seven championships in 14 years. I guess Nick Saban's won seven. They've won six at Bama. They've won six championships in 13 years. They win a championship every other year and still have had three other programs, Auburn, LSU, and, and Georgia, win a champion. You could go back to Florida, too. So you've had five different SEC programs in the last 15 years win a championship, and they've won 66% of the championships. Because the only non-SEC championships I can think of are the one Ohio State, the two Clemson, and uh, yeah, that's it. I think that's it. So basically like 80% of all championships have been won by the SEC over the past few years. And it's the, the Big Ten has big television contract, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where we set the pace when Oklahoma and Texas decide that they're going to leave the Big 12. They've been keeping the Big 12 alive for about a decade now. Uh, the, originally, Texas was scheduled to go to the Pac-12 back in 2011 before ESPN came in and established the Longhorn Network, which kept the Big 12 intact. And I've listened to John Skipper talk. He was the former CEO of ESPN talk about how they had an incentive to keep the Big 12 together. And so that's why they were willing to invest $15 million a year into the Longhorn Network. And so when they established the Longhorn Network with ESPN, uh, the Big 12 stayed together, Oklahoma and Texas built on, you know, there's also a Baylor in there, a TCU, but by far the two largest revenue generating programs in the Big 12, Oklahoma and Texas. Oklahoma and Texas leave the Big 12 for the SEC last summer. And we could talk more about the dynamics of how the pandemic sped all this stuff up and name, image, and likeness rules and all of this different stuff. But what it basically comes down to is television contracts were coming up. A new stage of realignment was coming up because four different conferences, the Big 12, the, the Pac-12, the Big 10, and the SEC 
had television contracts coming up sometime within the next three to four years. And so because of that, they were realigning schools to negotiate the next round of television deals. I think the Big Ten originally signed a 10-year television contract when they added Rutgers and Maryland and a bunch of other people back in 2011 and 2012. They negotiated a 10-year deal, and that 10-year deal was just expiring in 2022. This was the last year of that television contract. 2023 was an option year, but they're I think they're going to cancel out the last year of the deal. But basically, their deal was coming to an end at this time. And so the SEC had a deal ending after 2023, and the Big Ten had a deal ending after 2022. And so the SEC added two more teams to make it 16. The Big Ten added the USC and UCLA this year, and the Big Ten followed the SEC's model on how to get a new television contract. Because what the SEC did is they added Oklahoma and Texas. They have a 16-team conference with two more of the top 10 revenue-generating programs in college football. In fact, actually, the last two top 15 revenue... Because Oklahoma's like 13 largest revenue-generating program. The last two of the top 15 programs that weren't already in the SEC or the Big Ten were now in the SEC or the Big Ten. And so then the SEC went to ESPN and negotiated an exclusive television rights contract with ESPN for close to a billion dollars a year that included $300 million per season for the right to that Gary Nessler and, uh, gosh, who's the name... Uh, the, the, the SEC on CBS, oh, Gary Danielson, Brad Nessler, Gary Danielson, their SEC on CBS week broadcast and getting the best SEC game every week on CBS. CBS was paying $50 million for that game. ESPN paid $300 million for the right to that game. And ESPN gets the 1230 SEC game, they get a 9 o'clock SEC game, and they get a primetime SEC or ACC game, depending on the week. So they get on ABC, but I mean ESPN also, but specifically ABC, ABC gets noon East Coast time. I call it 9 o'clock because I'm on the West Coast. 9 o'clock kickoff with an SEC game on ABC, 12.30 game with the SEC on CBS, now the SEC on ABC with Brad Nessler, Gary Danielson, big game of the week, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have primetime on ABC, either an SEC game of the week or an ACC game of the week in the last spot. ESPN's paying a billion dollars a year for the SEC. They're paying, I think the number is about $200 million a year for the ACC, which is much, much less than the SEC deal, and the ACC wishes they could renegotiate their deal. And the SEC-ACC package now belongs exclusively to ESPN. So what the Big Ten did a year later was follow up the exact same model of the SEC. Because remember, the Big Ten has 14 schools as well. And they were a year later than the SEC on their new television contract. So they went from 14 to 16 by adding USC and UCLA then went to every non-ESPN negotiating partner and got themselves a brand new contract for somewhere, according to a business journal, a sports business journal, somewhere between $1.15 billion and $1.25 billion 
per year, just slightly more, ever so slightly more than what ESPN is going to pay for the SEC exclusive rights. Fox, CBS, and NBC are going to pay those exclusive rights for the Big Ten. And the way it's going to work is literally exactly like the NFL. It's going to be the the copycat of the NFL model, except on Saturdays. You have 9 a.m., which is noon on the East Coast, but 9 a.m., you have big noon kickoff on Fox, 12.30, instead of the SEC on CBS, you have the Big Ten on CBS, which, by the way, CBS paid more money for the rights to the Big Ten game of the week than they did for the SEC game of the week which is a little bit surprising to me, but, you know, to each their own, that CBS was going to be out of the college football game entirely. CBS paid more money for that than ESPN paid for the exclusive game of the week on on ESPN, SEC, on CBS. Like, they, the ESPN paid $300 million for the 12.30, which is 3.30 East Coast time, the 12.30 p.m. SEC game of the week, Reportedly, CBS is going to pay $350 million per year for the best Big Ten game every single week to be on CBS. And I was surprised that that was the case. Just keep the SEC deal. Like, I guess the Big Ten and the SEC might have equal value in their in their week-to-week games. Like, it's still going to be an Arkansas versus Texas A&M every other week. And instead of that, you get Michigan State versus Ohio State instead of the the big SEC game of the week being, you know, Florida versus Georgia. You might get a different version of Florida versus Georgia every other week, but you'll still get the Ohio State-Michigan game. You'll still get the Penn State-Ohio State game. You'll still get, uh, I don't know, Michigan versus Wisconsin. You'll still get the big ones, just like uh, CBS, well, now on ESPN, just like ABC is now going to get Alabama-Auburn, Alabama-Texas A&M, Georgia versus Alabama if they ever play in the regular season. You know, ESPN, ABC is going to get that game, but CBS basically paid the same amount for that, and I was surprised that they did. Um, but CBS paid more money for that game, and then NBC, just like Sunday Night Football, NBC is going to have Saturday Night Football, exactly like what the deal was for the NFL. They just structured their deal exactly like the NFL. We're going to have the morning game on Fox, the afternoon game on CBS, and the night game on NBC, just like the NFL. And I was surprised that they did that. I was surprised that they went for that model. And the rest of the games are going to be on FS1, and Peacock's going to have streaming games, and streaming services are still in the deal. Which, by the way, funny part about this, Fox and CBS and NBC leaked this deal out a week before it was done to put pressure on the streaming services possibly because you know it benefits the 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 television part or sorry it benefits the conference to leak out that a deal is eminent because then it puts pressure on Amazon or ABC or not ABC Amazon or Apple TV or whoever else is trying to get in on the streaming game probably not Netflix but you know the, those streaming partners that are really interested in live sports aspect. It puts pressure on them 
to then come back and say, we would like to pay X number of dollars for Northwestern versus Illinois. We would like to pay this much money to watch Rutgers and Maryland on our broadcast because we know Rutgers and Maryland fans will turn in for the exclusive rights to their games being on Amazon Prime or whatever else they do. But that's kind of where they're at right now. But basically, Peacock, FS1, CBS Sports Network, they're going to get involved in the Big Ten. The Big Ten Network is owned by Fox, which makes it a little bit easier for the Big Ten to make that one work. It's interesting how that played out. I didn't think the TV deal would be the next step. It makes sense just because of how close the new TV deal was. And I assume if conference expansion comes eventually, they'll just lump the teams together and like the new partners or the new teams that join the conference will will get involved in another deal. Uh, but the Big Ten kind of had an urgency to get a deal done. They got it. They can always come to the renegotiating table if they add another team to the mix. So it was interesting that they went for that on the new television contract. And Fox, CBS, and NBC going all in with the Big Ten is interesting because it also means that the Pac-12 and the Big 12 might get an exclusive deal also. And maybe it means they merge the conferences. Maybe the Big 12 does that thing where they take two or three or four of the best teams from the Pac-12 and just make a new, uh, what would it be... I guess it's 12 right now, so they make their own 16-team conference and try to negotiate a TV deal. The Big 12 and the Pac-12 are kind of just going to leave everyone up for scraps and see what happens after the fact. It's just interesting that the Big 10 went to that negotiating table and said, everyone except ABC, every major partner, do you want college football on Saturdays? And we've talked about it for years. Like Football, specifically the NFL, has a monopoly on the sports media on the media landscape as a whole, like not single-handedly keeping cable television alive, doing a really great job of keeping eyeballs on cable television. And if you're going to spend lots of resources, live sports are still the place to spend it. It's why the NFL's new TV deal is worth like a hundred billion dollars over the next 10 to 12 years. And so it's interesting that they, they went for that type of deal. And it was interesting that the big 10 negotiated that, to have a very structured type of schedule, which is smart to do if these companies are going to invest that much, or like in the case of CBS, invest seven times more money in college football than they were before. If you're going to invest seven times as much money, you want the security of where your games are going to be lined up on the broadcast. And for the case of Fox and the case of CBS and NBC, they get to specifically request the best games and NBC did the same thing with uh, the NFL where they get the best game almost guaranteed every week when they pick out the Sunday night football lineup they get first dibs on a lot of these games uh, CBS is going to get first dibs on most of these games as well because they're paying the most money and NBC decided we'll pay the second most money and get the second best game and Fox comes in and says we'll take the rest we will operate your television network. We'll still maybe have a deal with the Big 12 for the next two or three years so we can still host Big 12 games on Big Noon Kickoff. Maybe they'll get in on the Big 12 as well in negotiating a new deal. I'm pretty sure it's going to go to ESPN, but maybe it, it's a deal like right now where Fox and ESPN are both partners on the Big 12 and they're both still partners on the Pac-12. Uh, maybe they, one of them gets an exclusive deal. Maybe they don't. Who knows what's going to happen with that contract? I just learned about the Big Ten one, so it's difficult to predict exactly what's going to happen with the Pac-12 and the Big 12. And I'm interested in that fact because 
The Big Ten now has a very structured schedule. It is three biggest games a week. They've got eight games a week, theoretically. Obviously, there's bye weeks, but seven to eight games a week. And the three best ones are going to be best one CBS primetime, just like the SEC on CBS deal. We're going to go head to head with the SEC on CBS or the SEC on ABC. We're going to go head to head with the SEC in the 12:30 time slot. We're going to go head to head with ESPN on the big noon kickoff spot, and we're going to go head to head with the primetime game. I mean, obviously they were going to do that anyways, but we're going to do it without a partnership with ABC. And I think that's a pretty cool thing to have happen because it's going to look pretty different, at least in terms of how the structure of college football is going to work out. Cause it's going to be very distinctly two different conferences. The, the, the broadcasts are going to look different now that, you know, big 12 games are not on or big 10 games are not on ESPN, just along with sec games and pac 12 games. That part's going to look different the, the money and investment that they're going to put into their broadcasts are going to look different. The coverage on ESPN and Fox is going to be very conference-centric. And I think more than ever before, it's going to be two distinctly different broadcasts, which is similar to what the NFL, before I was born, what the NFL looked like when they had all of the AFC broadcasts on CBS and all of the NFC broadcasts on Fox. Now it's not the case anymore because then NBC got involved and ESPN got involved and all of the, you know, football's a national sport. Everyone talks about every game. But as regional sports disappear, this is going to be like the trial test decade. It's weird to say that, but for a decade, it's going to be a trial run on what the new model of college football and television contracts is going to look like. Because again, each of these member schools is about to pull in $80 million a year from the television contracts alone which UCLA is going to use to pull themselves out of astronomically large debt. That's kind of funny to think about it in that context. Just want to take a subtle shot at UCLA on our way out the door. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. Thank you for stopping into our oral history segment here and for talking about Kevin Durant as well here on the show. Make sure to leave a five-star review, download, rate, review wherever it is that you get podcasts. We appreciate you stopping in here today. And as always, take it easy. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.